Hello, and welcome to Ground Control Parenting, a blog, and now a podcast created for parents raising black and brown children. I'm the creator and your host, Carol Sutton Lewis. In this podcast series, I talk with some really interesting people about the job and the joy of parenting. Today, I am so happy to have Dr. Victor Carrion back again with us. As our regular listeners know, Dr. Carrion is the John A. Turner, MD, Professor and Vice Chair of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University, and he's the Director of the Stanford Early Life Stress and Resilience Program. Dr. Carrion's research is focused on the behavioral, academic, emotional, and biological effects of traumatic stress on children, and he has a special emphasis on early childhood stress in kids of color. Victor and I have been having a series of really interesting conversations about parenting on this podcast. He's our go-to guy for parenting stress advice, and I'm so glad he could join us today. Welcome to Ground Control Parenting, Victor. Hi, Carol. Nice to be here. Oh, so nice to have you back. It's been a while. And because it's been a while, and because we've had so many stressful things going on in the world since we last talked, I want to take us back to sort of the beginning of our conversations when you and I first started talking about stress. I, I love your the title of your program, Early Life Stress and Resilience Program, because I want to talk about stress and I want to talk about resilience. So first, let me ask you, I've heard you say on many occasions that stress is actually good. Remind me why stress is good? <laughs> it's all a balance, right, between stress and resilience. It's like we want to have enough resilience factors to be able to help us manage our stress. But stress really becomes an impediment when it really accumulates. So for example, what I mean by that is that stress expresses itself in an inverted U-shaped curve, meaning that at the beginning of the curve, the more stress we have, the better we perform, the better Mm -hmm. our health. Just like, for example, when we get a vaccine, right, we are stressing our immune system, and that's how it works. It helps us build defenses. The same thing happens psychologically. As we face challenges and face problems and we're giving opportunities to solve challenges, our adaptation improves, but only up to an optimal point, right, at the top mm-hmm. of that inverted U shape curve. After that, if stress continues to accumulate, what we see then is a decline, a decline in our health, a decline in our functioning, and a decline in our performance. So what we want to do when we say, oh, I want to be less stressed out, is I really want to not free myself completely from stress, but I want to reach back that optimal point where my performance is optimal. That is so helpful because I think these days we hear stress, it feels like that's such a bad thing. But you're right. If if you're challenged and your senses all get activated by the challenge, you perform better. I mean, I, I was a lawyer. Before I went to court, if I didn't get nervous, I would be nervous <laughs> because you really want everything fired up to be able to do the best that you could. So I get that, but I also get that, of course, too much stress, it because it's diminishing returns and that's where everything goes wrong. Now, you've talked about sort of the amount of stress that you can carry and, and you've called it the backpack of stress. And I, I really like that that image that all of us walk around with this imaginary backpack and into it, we can fit all the things that 
can bring stress, not in a bad way, but that can sort of heighten our need to perform. But what happens, you've talked about the, sort of the, the tipping point is when the backpack gets too heavy. <laughs> yeah, so the, the idea behind this is that very much in the way that we can manage our temperature, right, through a process of homeostasis, we can be at different temperatures. We can also carry different levels of stress. We are built to be challenged and, and we're built to adapt to certain mm -hmm. situations. But also in, in a range, right? After that range, that process of hemostasis uh, becomes something else. It's what we call in my field allostasis. And we actually talk about the allostatic load. And what that means is the physiological burden of your experiences having an impact on how your body functions. And so, for example, in our work researching traumatic stress, many times we refer to someone that experienced a traumatic event, right? So we visit a group of people that went through a hurricane or went through uh, an earthquake, a natural disaster, or a man-made disaster like a school shooting or, or something like that. But what becomes very evident is that although these events have an impact on everyone, those individuals that have a heavier backpack because of previous experiences have more of an impact. So let me give mm. you another example. Veterans that develop PTSD after being involved in combat, some of them develop PTSD and some of them do not post-traumatic stress disorder. Those mm -hmm. that develop PTSD tend to have more history of child maltreatment than the ones that do not develop the PTSD. More history of what kind of treatment? Child maltreatment. Oh, child maltreatment. Yes, ah. like physical abuse or... or oh, history of them being abused. Emotional abuse. And they didn't ah. have the PTSD necessarily after that maltreatment. It, it almost oh. took the accumulation of that, mm -hmm. the allostatic load, the backpack mm -hmm. being very heavy. And, mm -hmm. and it also all depends on your age, right? If, if you're five, six, seven, it's very easy for that backpack to get really heavy and for you to fall backwards, right? Especially mm -hmm. if you don't have the coping mechanisms or the resilience factors or the adaptive styles to really manage the heaviness of that backpack. Wow. That's such a good visual because we can look at all of our children and sort of think about what's in their backpack. And even in one family, you're going to have kids that have different weight, they can bear different weighted backpacks. I mean, some are just naturally more sensitive to things and some are just naturally more, things don't bother them as much. But I really like that because it helps you look at the way that particularly our children are impacted by stress as an individuals, as opposed to many of us think, oh, this shouldn't stress you out because it, if I were your age, it wouldn't stress me out. Yeah. So it's good to have this perspective. And it, it's interesting that you bring the, the issue of family because a part of it, we know part of this balance between stress and resilience, we know that genes play a role, but but it's not all of it. There's also temperament, there's personality styles, there's developmental mm -hmm. age in which you're in when you're facing that stress. So for example, there can be a stressor in the family that is affecting everyone, 
but all the different individual family members are at different stages of development, right? Dealing with different mm. milestones. So for, mm -hmm. for different individuals, it's going to be different. So you have, over the course of, of the years that you've studied stress, you and your team have developed a way of looking at managing it that involves a, a square and different quadrants of the square. Can you tell me a little about, I mean, we all, now that we all know what triggers the bad stress, let's talk a little bit about how we can make it a little better. And, and that quadrant has different areas in which everyone, but children in particular, can attack the different areas of stress. Can you elaborate on that quadrant? Yeah, yes. Uh, our work researching stress and resilience in youth has led us to develop a treatment intervention for children that have history of traumatic stress that we call Q-centered therapy, CCT. And, and mm -hmm. this intervention pays attention to what are the triggers that a child has and what are their usual responses and how can we develop new responses and how can we can test those responses. It also offers the development of a toolbox, and we can talk about that in a second. But first, let me tell you that you are right. The response, we visualize it as a square with four components meaning that everything that we do, every response that we take, every action has four main components. One is cognitive and what we think about this response. Another corner is how we feel physically. Uh, my heart starts beating fast or my hands get sweaty, right? Mm -hmm. Or I get a headache. Uh, the other corner is how we feel emotionally. Well, this makes me angry or it makes me sad or both feelings, right? And then the other corner of the actual behavior that we do, right? We mm -hmm. scream or we like throw the door, things like that. And mm -hmm. the reason that it helps to dissect it this way is that as we try to replace maladaptive responses with responses that are better, or more adaptive, all we need to do is start in one of those corners and change that piece. So, so either change what you think or change how you're feeling physically or change how you feel emotionally or change into doing something so that you can respond differently. Mm -hmm. And the other three corners kind of follow that. And, mm -hmm. and I like to call this precision, <laughs> precision psychology because for every child, uh, there might be a corner that they are better at operating with or working with. There are some kids that are really brainy, and they are like, well, let me think about this a little bit differently. There are other kids that are very somatic, very much into exercise on their body, so they can really say, oh, let me breathe deeply so that I can calm my, my racing heart, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas other kids may be like, well, I don't understand a word of what you're saying. I don't care about any of this. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to go with the behavior corner and just do something completely different. Uh, so, so for every style, for every personality, you know, you can start in one of these corners. And of course, you can start in different corners for different behaviors. What you don't start with is by taking the response away. Because for many kids, sometimes this response that is now maladaptive in the past has been adaptive. So let me mm. give you an example. A seven-year-old kid that experienced violence at home 
domestic violence at home and there were a lot of fights between uh, his caretakers, learns to run and go to his room and shut the door and maybe even get under the bed so that he's out of the picture. Mm-hmm. And this could be very adaptive in, in a household where there's domestic violence. But what happens a year later is that if he experiences the same degree of noise in the classroom that reminds mm-hmm. his body of what the body experienced before, the response might be the same. The response must be, you mm. must run, and then he runs out of the classroom. So now that adaptive response has become maladaptive, and, and there's no context for it, right? No one understands, not even the kid understands, why they are running out of the seventh mm-hmm. grade uh, classroom. Mm-hmm. So when the kid comes to us and when we work with the kid, the intervention cannot be, we want you to stop running, because if you look right, at their toolbox, right. running is, might be the only tool they have. So if you're telling them, I'm mm-hmm. going to take it away, they're going to fight you, mm-hmm. right? So what mm. we do then is we take that toolbox and we leave that running there. We don't do much with it. But we start developing new squares. We start developing new responses uh, that can be competing with that one. And as soon as the kid creates an armamentarium of responses that is more adaptive to them, they will cease doing the one that gets them in trouble. Now, Victor, I'm just going to interrupt one quick second because I got to stop and ask for a, some explanation of the word you just used. You developed okay, an armamentarium. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, What's that? <laughs> it's, it's the number of tools that they have, ah. right? What they go to mm-hmm. war with. Are they go ah. or what they go to do surgery with? Are they only going with one scalpel or are they going with a retractor with scissors with two scalpels of different sizes, right? Oh. So we want that toolbox to have as many tools as possible. Tools such as tools that help decrease anxiety, such as deep breathing, mm-hmm. uh, mindfulness exercises, right? Mm-hmm. Tools that help decrease rigidity or, or increased cognitive style, how to think more positively. And, and what's interesting about this toolbox is that I have noticed time after time that I can teach some tools and they can be helpful. But if I've engaged the kid to such an extent that they start developing their own tools, nothing is going to work mm. better than their own mm. tools because of the, the sense of agency and self-esteem and self-efficacy that they develop. I actually learned this a long time ago when I was teaching muscle relaxation to a child and the child tells me, well, can I just drink a glass of milk? <laughs> and when I'm feeling this way, and, and I knew instantly at that moment, I could go two ways. I could say, no, you must do what I'm teaching you. <laughs> or I could say, Yes, sure. You can drink a glass of milk and put it on your toolbox. Well, as the, as our work continue, nothing worked better. Nothing worked best for that individual, that kid, than drinking that glass of milk when they were feeling stressed out. And <laughs> and and part of that is because they developed it themselves. But you have to get them to the point that they understand what they're doing, right? That mm-hmm, they understand mm-hmm. the concept of toolbox that they understand the concept of the square, and it's, it works. It's great. 
Well, you know, as you were saying this, it just occurred to me, we all heard so much now about deep breathing. And quite frankly, I don't find myself getting immediately relaxed when I deeply breathe. Mm -hmm. But if we think of it as uh, practicing for in stressful situations to be able to call on these things, it actually, it, it makes more sense to me because particularly for younger kids, I mean, I've been reading about deep breathing exercises being taught in classrooms and part of me thinks, oh, that's great, but really what's that going to do? But if they learn to deeply breathe as a response and, and it becomes sort of a practiced kind of part of their life that they do regularly and they know to use it if they're feeling unhappy or, or anxious, it's actually going to be in there for them to use as opposed to them have to sort of figure out how to breathe in the moment. So so I now I take back all of my eye rolling <laughs> at deep breathing. <laughs> I did I did have some minor eye rolling at the beginning too because I was like, well, I do breathe all the time. <laughs> so <laughs> how is this helping me? But then I, I really discovered that what happens when you take some time to extend that breath in and that mm -hmm. breath out, you're really activating physiologically areas of your body, like for example, the vagus nerve, that's going to calm a lot of organs in your body and that goes both to the brain and to the heart, for example. And then also that you're bringing more oxygen in and that oxygen goes into the muscle and then the muscle relaxes with that oxygen. So that there's, there's this physiological advantages about having a longer breath to it as well. But you're saying something that's very important. We teach the kids the tools. We don't tell them what to put in their toolbox. They are the ones that decide if that mm -hmm. tool is going to go into their toolbox or not. Because for some children, especially children that have experienced a lot of trauma, sometimes relaxation doesn't feel good, doesn't feel mm. good to them. Some kids may mm -hmm. feel very vulnerable if they are too mm -hmm. relaxed. It is better mm -hmm. to remain a little bit hypervigilant or vigilant. And so, you know, I've had kids that said, no, no, thank you. I don't want to be relaxed. And, and yeah. you, have, you have to respect that. Wow. You know, just staying on that, the physiological quadrant of the box, I, I've heard you say in, in previous discussions, and, and you really got me thinking about this, how one of the reasons why exercise is a good combatant of stress, and this is for children, but also for adults as well, is because it takes away the perception, which you might not even know that you have, that the increased heart rate and, and the um, perspiration that comes when you are stressed and when you are scared, it takes away the perception that that, that, that physical feeling is associated with the bad feeling of stress. I mean, if you work out, if you start to get those same feelings of perspiration and increased heart rate in an environment that is good for you, like you're running or you're, I mean, you're running to exercise or you're playing some sort of activity that requires you to get winded, you can start to sort of, and, and you have the sort of rush, the endorphins or whatever it is that, that happens when you finish exercising, you feel good. You can begin to substitute the sort of scary feeling associated with those physiological mm -hmm. responses and make it a more sort of, uh, it, it doesn't make it better, but just, you know, when you get stressed out and then on top of it, you, your heart starts racing and your heart starts to race and you feel, you feel worse. I mean, at least you can not get more stressed out by your physical reaction if you exercise enough so that your body's used to that. 
I ha- I hadn't thought about that, but that's that's really helpful. Yeah, no, that's that's really correct. As you mentioned, you're basically changing the context in which that cue, and that's why it's called cue center therapy, or trigger uh, happens, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. No, that that's great. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show. This is really, really helpful. Now I want to move a little bit towards the more practical application of this right now as we approach the holiday season and we're in the holiday season because holidays, while they can be really great times to get together with family, it can also bring on stress. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about how we can guard against getting stressed out over the holidays or what we do if we begin to get stressed out. Yeah. So, so here, that picture of the inverted U-shaped curve is very helpful because we are going to be stressed, right? But we want to be stressed to the point that it helps us manage all of the things that we need to do. Usually, we're busier. We have more deadlines. We have certain expectations. Um, so we are going to be more stressed. But if we do feel that it's really shifting from that optimal point and that actually it's affecting our sleep or how we are relating to others or how we feel about ourselves, then yeah, we need to make some changes. And one of the things that I would say is that we really need to set realistic goals for what we can do at the time, right? So we all hear about managing expectations. And in a way, this has to do with the setting of the, of the goals. But we all set goals, but, but I'm saying let's set realistic goals. Not what you did last year, not what traditionally has been done, but what you can do based on the circumstances that you are experiencing now. I mean, for many people, people are happy because, you know, they can get together again with their families and all of that. But we are still you know, in, in pandemic mode, because COVID is still around in a way. Mm-hmm, and, absolutely. Uh, and what that is telling us is that we really need to be more flexible about those expectations because any plans that we make at any minute can, should be able to be canceled mm-hmm, <laughs> or should be mm-hmm. able to be shifted or should be able to be changed. I mean, I can see how it can be very disappointing that if for three years these children have not seen their grandparents and all of a sudden there are plans to see them this year and for X reason, right, because of a snowstorm or a -hmm, canceled mm -hmm. flight or maybe even COVID again, you can imagine that that's going to be disappointing not only for those kids but for the whole family. And so I would, I would always recommend that when making plans from now on, we always have like plan B, okay? Mm-hmm. Like we are going to have this visit by your grandparents as plan A. But plan B is that, no, we're going to have this other dinner and we're going to visit them via Zoom or we're going to do mm-hmm. something else so that mm-hmm. they can mm-hmm. be prepared, so that they can be ready. I, I think we mm-hmm. all need to remember that you know, the, the, this is a season of joy, <laughs> we call it, <laughs> right? And we have mm-hmm. to remember that the joy comes through the process. It doesn't come through the goal. 
So it's not necessarily those grandparents showing up at the door. That may not be the most joyful moment. Mm -hmm. But the most joyful moment is getting ready for them and the grandparents, you know, talking to the grandchildren that they're coming and the kids decorating the house. And so, so don't put all your eggs in that one basket of the thing that must happen because it may not. Mm -hmm. So, and that's mm -hmm. why we need plan B. And then enjoy the process of getting to either plan as you are preparing mm -hmm. for them. I think in the past, you and I also have talked about careful respect for traditions, <laughs> meaning that, <laughs> <laughs> that it's great to, to want to do things that we've always done. But in, in a way, we have to work on that flexibility, right? We have to be less rigid and understand that sometimes not everything is going to happen. You may not mm -hmm. find in the store that particular thing that you want, you know, for the mm -hmm. house. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, that you may really have to test yourself in terms of new things that you're going to do or that plan B. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I really like what you've said about managing children's expectations, because I, I think parents can go into the season with that in the back of their mind. And I think also, as parents, we have to manage our own expectations in that I, for one, I, I love various aspects of the holiday, and I would need to get myself comfortable with the plan B and be able to be excited about the plan B so that when I talk to my kids, I can deliver them both with equal enthusiasm. And some of us may just need to take a beat and, and absorb that and be able to do that before we present all these options to our children so that we can all truly enjoy whatever happens. I think it's great advice, but I think in, it, it's sort of advice for both the parents, what they can do for the children, but also what they should do for themselves. And we did talk when we, we were talking in the midst of the pandemic at its worst about how traditions were all being changed and, and people found that stressful. But I think in the course of the pandemic, we learned how to really blow up traditions or since we couldn't have the traditions, we were making new traditions. And even though it was stressful not to be able to do the old things, it was kind of fun to think about how to do things differently. And so what I'm thinking, and you can tell me if you agree, that perhaps what we should be looking to do as we move out of the worst of the pandemic, perhaps we should try to figure out how we can take some of the new traditions that were a lot of fun during the pandemic and incorporate them in, maybe get rid of some of the old ones. There seems to be now kind of a rush to get back to where we were, but, but maybe we should think about a new series of traditions that combines the ones that we missed and the ones that we've recently made. What do you think? I think that's a great idea, especially for very young children, because if you are three, four, five, that's probably all you know. So for you, those are old <laughs> traditions. <laughs> so, oh, yeah, that's so, right. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and they were the result of uh, adaptation, and they do say something about what we went through together, you know, as, as mm -hmm. a family and as a community. And mm -hmm. they do mean something. And perhaps with being so busily scheduled with the new opportunities, the kids are going to be missing some of the simpler things they were doing mm -hmm. in years past. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, I really like that idea of revisiting mm -hmm. and maybe combining, you know, some of the old with the new. Right. So... 
I, I am going to just turn away from the holiday stress relief, which you have very generously provided us, to one more topic that I've always wanted to talk with you about, and I'm going to grab this opportunity. And this is about the concept of therapy, therapy for children and even therapy for adults. It's no secret that therapy in communities, the African-American community for one, has been kind of stigmatized. I mean, there are many people who believe that the concept of going to a stranger and talking about your problems is is not high on the list of something they'd want to do. I mean, many people have their faith to turn to. Many people believe by talking to family members with a ready ear that that's the answer. And so as anxiety becomes much more of a commonly talked about topic and one of the prescriptions for anxiety is therapy, there is some pushback. I, I personally am a, am a believer in therapy. I, it, I don't accept the stigma, but I think it would be helpful to help destigmatize it if we could get a better understanding of exactly what it is. I mean, what happens when you seek therapy? And I really want to talk to you with respect to with children, because if you have a child, a five-year-old, let's say, who is unhappy, nervous, is, is too young to say to you, I need to talk to someone or I need help, but is just demonstrating, you know, all the quadrants are out of order. <laughs> and someone, a doctor perhaps has told you that having your child have some sort of therapy is helpful. What is a parent would I expect? I mean, what what happens? Do, do I go in the room with the therapist? How does it work? Yeah, it changes, right? From practice to mm -hmm. practice. But some general guidelines are that if the child is very young, you actually meet with the parents first. Uh, and You, you mean get, the therapist meets with the parents? Mm -hmm. Yes, the therapist meets with the parents mm -hmm. to get a history as to what is the complaint, what are the issues, is the patient real? Is the child really the patient, or is the patient the family system? Many times, behaviors mm. in children are kind of a red flag as something that may not be working in the system. So you kind of assess that, or if in fact the child does need something, obviously the child may be getting affected if anything is happening in the system. So it can be uh, a combination of factors, and. And what happens in, in therapy, I'm, I'm happy to say, I, I think stigma is decreasing, especially for things like anxiety and depression, because people talk about them quite often. But, mm -hmm. but we often talk about how do I develop to my full potential, right? How do I learn more about myself when there's so much more to learn? Well, it is a process to attain that. So in a way, all of us can use it. You know, it is, you don't need to necessarily have a problem. It's like you don't need to have muscle pain to have, go to the gym, right? You go to the gym mm -hmm, every mm -hmm. day to, to keep fit. So to keep mentally fit, sometimes you use the process of therapy. And the process of therapy is one in which you are talking with someone, you're engaging with someone who is in a non-judgmental way, not biased by the relationship with you. So your friends and your family and everything, they may have the best of intentions, but they know what they know and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And they view it through a lens, one lens and nothing else. Therapists are professionals that are trained to look through many lenses and to really not involve their own issues into, because they do have, <laughs> we do have them, but, <laughs> but to not bring them, right? to the to the session uh, ideally 
uh, and build a place where you can actually examine options, look at your history, be non-judgmental with yourself, and actually be listen. A lot of what happens is not what the therapist is going to be telling you, but it's what you are going to be expressing that, that many times doesn't get expressed. Now, you talk about very young kids and how do they express themselves, where most of the time they express themselves through play. Play is very important developmentally. It's not only something to have fun, but it's how kids grow socially, emotionally, motor-wise. So we use that element. We use the element of play to engage with very young children, build a relationship, engage with them. And sometimes through play, play itself can manifest some of the issues that the kid is dealing with. And sometimes play is just to build an opportunity where it feels more comfortable to start mm. talking and to talk to someone. So, you know, uh, it, it's very interesting because I'll, I'll give you an example of someone that I treated when he was five years old, and this was during my training, and he had experienced tremendous abuse, and I'm not going to get into the details of that, but we were doing play. We were doing play, and we, were, we did play for about like a month, and none of these issues or subjects were coming up. So I, uh, I told my supervisor, you know, it's been like a month, and nothing comes up. And the supervisor says, well, have you asked? <laughs> have you asked how they feel about it? <laughs> And immediately it became very clear that the resistance was not from the kid <laughs> about this. It was my own resistance, you know, wanting to not want to hear uh, everything this kid had experienced. Anyway, on my session right after that supervision, I, I tell this five-year-old who's like playing comfortably in a corner, well, I was wondering if you had any feelings about what happened. And this little five-year-old turns around stares at me and says, I thought you would never ask. <laughs> and then proceeded to just really express uh, a lot of feelings that he had about what he had gone through. And um, so it is, it is in the same way that I talk about a toolbox, right? A therapist has to have different tools available to them, plays one of them, and talking is another. <laughs> That's such a great story. <laughs> well, I, and, and what you've said really resonates, particularly the concept of the non-judgmental ear, because I don't think people focus on that when they think about therapy. I think they think that you are, if they go into a room with a stranger, they're revealing thoughts and, and perhaps secrets that the stranger will judge them on or that the stranger will repeat. Well, I, I imagine, but it's really important. Not only is the therapist not judgmental, but they're bound by a confidentiality oath that prohibits them from talking about this with <laughs> with other non-professionals. So I guess that it, it's hard, particularly if you're feeling whatever anxiety takes you to a therapist, it's hard to sort of trust that that would be the case, but it's really important. Um, and, and you're right. The stigma is not nearly as strong. So many people talk about the benefits of therapy, but I just thought it was important to hear what happens so it's not so mysterious. And also that the kind of tools that you can get, a child can get or an adult can get in sessions of talking about 
what's going on, what, what the way that you're thinking, the kind of tools you can get that you can put in your toolkit to use if you are feeling this way again, it, it's really helpful. It, it's a skill building set that that I'm not sure people focus on. I mean, they, they, the goal is to get you in a position where you know what to do. And you can, if you're, if one of those quadrants is flaring up, <laughs> you, you've got the tools to try to combat it. So, well, that that's, that's really, really helpful. And I hope what you say, I, I understand that it's right. You're right. The stigma is fading. I really hope it will continue to fade. But it, it's been, it's very helpful to hear your perspective on it. Yeah, it's still still high for certain conditions, right? Like schizophrenia and psychosis. There's There's still a lot of fear about people that are expressing these symptoms, right? If we run into them in the street or, or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly... It's no secret that mental health generally has been in great decline and the pandemic really exacerbated that. It, it made it, if people were feeling anxious or depressed and lonely before the pandemic, I mean, being isolated for all that time really made things worse. And and I think one of the reasons why it's good that that we get to hear from you and it's good that we talk about things like therapy is because there just seems to be more and more people struggling and all the, this concept of building the toolbox and having the backpack not get too heavy, we have to kind of train ourselves to think about this kind of thing because I'm sure that, that so many people who are, who are struggling now didn't anticipate two years ago that they would feel this way. So I, I imagine, I mean, I've heard you say it, your team has seen more evidence of, of mental distress over the past few years. Yeah, unfortunately, but what's surprising is, is that it's not only anxiety and depression, it's all kinds of mental health mm. conditions. It's like whatever you had from before, many times has gotten worse because yeah. of, even though a lot of treatment was being given, you know, through telepsychiatry, mm-hmm. sometimes people didn't necessarily follow with the care that they needed. So see, mm-hmm. some situations got worse, some situations didn't get assess or diagnose when they were expected. But what I've been seeing recently is that it's not only in the realm of mental health, that is really in medicine in general, just in health. Mm. So, so it is really a time to take care of yourself, to go mm-hmm. back to your doctors, to get back onto your treatments and regimens and really make up for the time loss. Also, there there is something about, remember when we used to have finals and we would never get a cold and then after the final, we totally got mm-hmm. a cold. So I, <laughs> right, I, think, right. I think there's an element of that too, in that we were old in this fight or flight response during this time of the pandemic, that now mm-hmm. that we see light at the end of the tunnel and some circumstances, the body kind of feels like it can now express itself. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and it's expressing itself from what it had, but it's also expressing itself from the stress that it went through. So it is very important that we do take care of our brain, of our body, of ourselves during this time. And with the holidays coming up, what we want to do is use those holidays to strengthen us and help us in that process, not to get further aggravated by additional stress. Right. That is exactly right. 
We need to take good care of ourselves and take the time that we may have over the holidays where perhaps we're not working as much and we're getting to spend time with family to just really focus on self-care and family care and um, and taking it easy. Well, Dr. Carrion, as usual, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. And always when I end conversations with you, I feel like I know so much more and feel really happy that you and your practice exists to help people generally feel better. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you so much. I also enjoy very much uh, talking with you and, uh, and I wish you a stress-free, nice holiday season. <laughs> thank you. And the same to you <laughs> and to everyone listening. <laughs> I hope everyone listening enjoyed this conversation and that you'll come back for more. Please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and tell your friends. For more parenting info and advice, please check out the Ground Control Parenting blog at groundcontrolparenting.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Ground Control Parenting and on LinkedIn under Carol Sutton Lewis. The Ground Control Parenting with Carol Sutton Lewis podcast is a part of the Seneca Women Podcast Network in partnership with iHeartMedia. Until the next time, take care and thanks for listening.